MBA-selected students that have been uh, arriving to Milan um, from all over Europe and would like to ask some questions. Uh, let's, yeah, this one's... Yeah, I'll begin again. We're, we're, uh, we do look for intelligence and energy and integrity, and our managers overwhelmingly come with the businesses that we buy, so we have the chance to look at what they've done over 20 or 30, 40 years, and we can we can see their abilities just as if you were, you know, hiring soccer players and you had the chance to see how they performed over the previous 10 years. You would know what you were getting. I would not be able to do as well in evaluating managers if I were to select, we'll say, from a class of 100 MBAs. I would not know that much about their – I would know they were all pretty smart or they wouldn't be there. And I know they all had energy, but I, would, I wouldn't have a track record that I get when we buy a business. When we buy a business, we're looking at a management that's been there for a long time. We can see their performance. We can see how they've behaved in difficult situations. We can see how they've treated their employees and customers, and we can get a very good reading on them. Good evening. Francesco Renzo from Milan. Uh, my question is slightly more personal, and I hope I don't go too far beyond the line. Um, I'm just very curious about what you do in your spare time. What are your hobbies, your passion, and most importantly, whether your hobbies, passions, and so on ever draw any kind of business or investment decision, and which were the results of those choices? Well, first of all, <clears throat> I have a lot of spare time because uh, the managers at Berkshire do all the work. I just... Uh, sit there in the office and read and talk on the phone occasionally. Uh, so, and it may surprise you, I, uh, I, leaving out the question of email, uh, I spend more time uh, on the computer than Bill Gates does. Uh, the, uh, we, we use that as a trick question sometimes when we appear together. Um, and I spend about, spend about 12 hours, at least 12 hours a week playing bridge on the Internet I play on something called OK Bridge most of the time. My name is T-Bone. Uh, <laughs> I put my age as 103, so when I do something dumb, people will say, well, for a guy 103, he's not so bad. <laughs> and uh, I, I play almost every night. I play uh, uh, on the weekends. Uh, I can't get enough of it. My partner, incidentally, almost all of the time is... Uh, uh, an Italian woman who lives in the United States who's uh, come along on this trip, actually, and uh, she was twice world champion, uh, and we have a terrific time, and that's my favorite activity. I used to play golf. I still play a little bit, but I've gotten so bad that uh, I can hardly bear to watch myself <laughs> play golf, uh, and I, I, do a lot, I do a lot of reading. But, uh, I like movies. Uh, but the best thing I like is, is, is running Berkshire Hathaway. Um, I would like to know what is happiness to you? Uh, I mean, once you've achieved what you have achieved and at your age, what is it that keeps you going? And um, linked to that, uh, I was wondering whether, in your opinion, uh, the kind of economic system we're currently living in and on which 20th century economics has been focusing for a very long time is still correct on uh, focusing on maximizing input. Uh, er, sorry, outputs, and uh, uh, instead we should maybe start reconsidering other systems that focus more on redistribution and income uh, equality between people. Thank you. 
In synthesis, well, I get the luxury at age 77 of getting to do exactly what I want to do every day in my life, and so I'm doing what I enjoy the most. I tap dance to work every morning. I love what I'm doing. I get to work at the kind of work I like. I get to work with the people I like to work with. I've got managers that I basically love them. They love me, apparently, and I like the shareholders I work with. There's really nothing about my job that I would trade in any way, so it's the perfect job, and if it wasn't, I'd be doing something else. In terms of quality, I think in the United States, I'm not going to, I can't comment on Europe. I think that our tax system is not the most equitable tax system that could be designed. In the United States, I end up paying a lower percentage of my income to the federal government, both through income and payroll taxes, than any other person in our office. Some of them make, they make between, we'll say, $60,000 a year and $700,000 or $800,000 a year. I make more than that, and the government has designed things, not because I have any special tax advisors or tax arrangements, but simply following the law, I end up paying a much lower tax rate, and I think that ought to be changed in the United States. Good evening. This is Luke Jordan from London. It strikes me that you've probably worked with more great managers than almost anyone, and what would really interest me, I think you've been asked quite a lot about how you find them and pick them. My question would be, what have you learned from them? What do good managers do that mediocre or bad managers don't do, or vice versa? And linked to that would also be the question of, if I look around our society, it strikes me that probably the place in most dire need of better and more good managers will be around the public sector. And my question would be, why do you think that is, and what do you think could be done to kind of improve the quality of management within our governments broadly? Well, I think you're right, that partly because we own 76 different operating businesses and partly because I'm 77 years old, so I've been around a while, I have worked with and am working with a large number of really great managers. The common quality they have, in addition to those ones I mentioned of intelligence and energy and integrity, but they all have a passion for what they do. They are not doing it for the money. At least three-quarters of the managers we have at Berkshire Hathaway are independently wealthy. They do not need to go to work in the morning. They go there because they love what they're doing. It's creative. I liken it to painting a painting. They are painting a painting that they see in their mind and it's never finished. They get to keep working on it every day. They get to work on it the way they want to. And they inspire others because that passion brings out enthusiasm and a dedication in others that if they were just kind of going through the motions, sort of sleepwalking through their jobs, you just wouldn't get. Now, you brought up a very good question, and how do you bring that sort of passion to government? Well, certainly, certain leaders inspire people to go into government that have that same passion about helping their fellow human being through government. 
John Kennedy did it with the Peace Corps and inspired many people. And uh, an inspirational leader in any field, whether it's business or politics, will will energize uh, and attract uh, people who will put forth the kind of effort and, uh, that you're talking about. Uh, I hope we have one in the next president of the United States. Uh, uh, but I think I think you need a leader that that can cause people to think above where they've been thinking before and bring out bring out energy and passion in them that they didn't know was present. And uh, you occasionally get that, or maybe more than occasionally, but you get it in the public field. But I don't think you can write a manual or something of that sort that does it. Maurizio Romandini from Milan. Um, once you said that your favorite holding period is forever. If we look at private equity funds, their holding period is three to seven years. And after a while, they just sell the company to another private equity fund or releverage the company. What I would like to ask you is that if you think that in the long term, this business model is sustainable. Uh, well, the business well, model of holding forever. <coughs> yeah, well, excuse me. Excuse me. Uh, of operating businesses, the one we buy control of. Uh, our holding period is forever. In terms of marketable securities, uh, we'd like to hold a very, very long time, forever as a term I probably wouldn't use on that. But it, we don't buy anything with the idea that we're going to resell it. With our operating businesses, we promise that we won't resell them, except under the two conditions I mentioned in the annual report. With our marketable securities, we have no intention of selling them the next day or the next month or the next year. But from time to time, we sell something. I think it's not only a sustainable business model, I really think it's the best business model. I think that we attract people who want to sell uh, really very outstanding businesses, managers who want to come with us, <clears throat> because we do have that model where they know that, that the family business they build up over 30 or 40 or 50 years uh, will not be resold two years later and leveraged up to the sky, but instead will find a permanent home with Berkshire Hathaway. So I think it's a I think it's a business model, model that will stand the test of time. Bjorn Ruval, Copenhagen, Denmark. I would like to build on, uh, on two of the themes already up there, inequality and lack of, of good managers. I think there's one huge group, namely female managers, which we have overlooked, at least in Denmark and perhaps in the rest of the world. I would like to hear your opinion of what the significance of true equal opportunities for female and male business people like us is for business and one or two innovative uh, game-changing approaches for really how to change this. Uh, of these seven MBA students are all guys. Well, half the talent in the world is female. And for thousands of years, uh, it was incredibly underutilized, in fact, subjugated in many cases. and. Uh, I was born in 1930. If I'd been born female, I would not have. I would not be up here today. Uh, it, uh, I wouldn't have had the same opportunities. My family wouldn't even looked at me in exactly the same way in terms of my potential. They would. They, they would not have. They, they would have not have talked to me the same way in terms of what might be accomplished, even though I might have had exactly the same wiring in my brain. I think that has changed, at least in the United States, quite a bit for the better. It's not. It's 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 got a ways to go, but it's gone a, a very long way, just during my lifetime. 
course, until 19, what, 21, you know, a woman couldn't vote in the United States. She couldn't be on a jury. Many places she couldn't inherit property. I mean, it was, it's unbelievable to me what happened in that over hundreds of years. If I'd been born a female, I think I'd have been, I'd have been uh, raging in the streets probably under those circumstances. We now have at Berkshire uh, three female CEOs. We have Kathy Tamraz, who runs Business Wire. Uh, we have Susan Jock, who runs Borsheim. She's been running it for 12 years. Uh, and we, we have uh, um, at, at, at uh, the Pampered Chef, Marty Gottschalk, and uh, there are three outstanding executives. Uh, they could hold their own against anyone. Uh, I think we, I know we'll have more in the future because talent is too scarce to, to put aside half the population. And, but I do, it's made a, a lot of progress. When I got out of Columbia Business School uh, in 1951, there was one female in the class. I now meet with uh, students from 32 or so universities every year, MBA students, and I would say that it, probably a third of the uh, of the students that come to visit me are, are, are female. So it's changing in the right direction, and I would say it's about time. Good evening, uh, Stefan Jung from Stockholm in Sweden. Uh, next to more, the more personal questions and the question about the quality of managers, I have a question about the investment world. Uh, over the last years, we have seen the rise of private equity with the increasing amount of money they have raised for their funds. Uh, now we have an upcoming uncertainty with uh, the power of like uh, sovereign wealth funds. Uh, if we look at the size of like an Abu Dhabi authority, investment authority that dwarfs uh, more or less like a Blackstone or a KKR, what do you see as the implications of that, of uh, sovereign wealth funds coming to the U.S. and to Europe uh, looking for investments? The standpoint of the U.S., we've, we've created the sovereign wealth funds. Uh, uh, our current account deficit is 700 to $800 billion a year, so call it $2 billion a day we are shipping to the rest of the world because we're importing uh, more than we're exporting uh, for our own consumption. We're consuming 5 or 6% more of our GDP than, than, than we're producing. And... When we send that $2 billion a day to the rest of the world, uh, $700 million a day to China, for example, with a $250 billion a year trade deficit, we are creating investable funds basically for the rest of the world. And we might like it in the United States if they just stick the money under the mattress. But uh, from their standpoint, that would not be a very satisfactory thing to do. So they can buy our government bonds, which they've done in a big way. They can buy, make direct investment in the United States, build plants and that sort of thing, which they've done. But they also can buy marketable securities and or stocks and bonds. And it would be impossible almost not to have sovereign wealth funds as long as we're pushing $2 billion a day on the rest of the world. And I view that as another form of institutional investment. Uh, uh, I think that any time you're investing in another country, uh, basically, the investor has more to worry about than the country does. I mean, that uh, plenty of people have invested in other countries and had their property expropriated or something of the sort. So I, I do not think it's, I don't think it's the worry of the United States particularly. And I think that uh, that they will be just as responsible as investors as plenty of the people in the United States, maybe more so in some cases. So I have, I have no fears about them. But it's going to be an increasing phenomenon. I mean, as long as we 
run a seven or eight hundred billion dollar a year current account deficit we are going to have more and more ownership of u s assets around the world and it's going to come in one form or another and one big form is going to be sovereign wealth funds Anna Martin from CNBC. Um, yes, it is. You're doing great. <laughs> um, Mr. Buffett, you've been traveling a lot this week. Oil has reached new highs. I don't think the two are related, but I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about how, you, how the higher oil price is influencing the investment decisions that you make. The higher oil prices obviously affect many of our operating businesses, but if we are investing in businesses, and we have many that have a big cost element of crude oil or natural gas. Uh, generally, we're in the same competitive position uh, as our competitors in, 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 in our cost structure. So we're in the carpet business, for example. When you walk on carpet, you're walking on oil. It's, it's, uh, but our competitors have the same cost pressures. Uh, that, that we face in something like that. So it doesn't really affect us much in determining what we do. I mean, it, it, it has a major effect on our country in various ways. It contributes to the current account deficit big time. If you just take the last $30 a barrel on oil, you know, the United States imports more than 10 million barrels a day, so you're talking $120 billion just from that that, that we have to ship to the rest of the world. Uh, to just get the same amount of oil as before. So it, 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 has a, it has a real effect on the society. It doesn't have much effect on our investment decisions. It may make me wish I'd bought more oil stocks a few years ago, but, but uh, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't determine whether I want to own Coca-Cola stock or American Express or Wells Fargo or Burlington Northern. It's, it's actually a benefit. In a, in a fairly big way to the competitive position of the railroads versus the truckers to carry the same tons of, of, of uh, a cargo via truck uh, requires about three times, uh, maybe even closer to four times the amount of uh, fuel that carrying it by rail does. So the rail gains a competitive advantage against truckers as oil increases in price. So to the extent that we have a big rail investment, it's actually an advantage, but it's not a big decision. It's, it's of enormous importance for society. It's, it's not that important to Berkshire Hathaway's portfolio. Fubi Corriere della Sera, what's your overall impression after three? Can you hear me? Yeah. Um, Fubini from Corriere della Sera. Um, I just wanted to ask you, what's your general impression after three days in Europe? And I ask this because the general impression what? after three days in continental Europe. Uh, talking about the businesses that you have uh, visited or people you have met. And I ask this because I think a few days ago you said that maybe you left it a little bit late uh, visiting Europe and you wish you had done this 10 years ago, maybe out of some uh, consideration that Europe was not that dynamic. Well, my first impression is that um, Europe has a lot of journalists. The <laughs> uh, I wish I had done done this earlier, uh, obviously. If I'd done it 10 or 20 years ago, we probably owned a couple, at least a couple more companies uh, that were European-based uh, uh, than has been the case. The only 
company that we have that's really based outside the United States is, 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 is this car, which uh, happened a couple of years ago and was one of the best things that ever happened to Berkshire. So I've been derelict in, in not coming sooner, but better late than never. At, uh, uh, in terms of, of the – I've met a lot of people. i met some great business people. At, uh, I met 40 or so last night. I'll meet another large group tonight. Uh, and the similarities are more important than the differences. I mean, these are people with passion for their businesses. They've got great operating businesses. It's, it's not a lot different than the uh, – in fact, in no real way is it different than the United States, except maybe a little language barrier from time to time. But uh, uh, we're looking for the same thing here that we look for in the United States. I think we'll find some businesses here over the next 10 years. Uh, just like we'll find some in the United States. And uh, we want managers with passion. We want businesses that have strong competitive positions that are durable. Uh, we want an attractive price when we buy. We want something we understand. It's, it's, there's no real difference, which is, a, again, a condemnation of me, because since there is no real difference, I should have been here a lot, a lot earlier. Hello, Mr. Buffett, Francie Lacqua, Bloomberg Television. Now, you've mentioned three values that you look for in managers, integrity, energy, and intelligence. You own 20% of Moody's, and there are now concerns that certain managers were covering up errors for the ratings. If this does reveal to be the case, would you be asking for management change as soon as possible? I can't recall that we've ever asked for management change in any marketable security that we've owned uh, uh, there's a board of directors of Moody's. I'm, I read a short press account this morning, uh, but I don't know the facts in the situation. But if people did the wrong thing, they obviously should go. And if, 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 But who did what, I have no real knowledge of. I would say that if you own stock in any major corporation over a 10- or 20-year period, something will go wrong at some point. Uh, and the question is how a company responds uh, when it does. Uh, at Berkshire, we have 255,000 employees. You know, as we sit here, somebody is probably doing something I wish they weren't because uh, if you have a city of 255,000 people, you know, it is not going to be totally, totally air free in how everyone behaves. And uh, through the people, you, you try to detect mistakes early on, you try to. You should correct them promptly when they happen, but that's really the responsibility of the board of, uh, of Moody's, and uh, uh, um, you know they will garner, they'll they'll, they'll gather the facts, uh, find out, and I don't know who's responsible. I don't know whether there's anything to be responsible for, but just reading the press accounts, uh, if they find that people did things that they shouldn't have done, judging, and they evaluate the seriousness of each party that uh, was that was involved. Uh, I, I would expect them to take the appropriate action. We won't do it as, as shareholders. Uh, I mean, we don't get involved in that.
Hello there. Um, Alessandra Miniatro from Bloomberg News. Um, my question was, you, you've met with a lot of business people. As we know, you are in Italy, and I was wondering why Italy? I mean, I know you've also been to other countries. It, what is it about Italy? Uh, it's one of the four you visited that interests you particularly. And my other question was, you said, you know, there isn't I haven't much got of it. I the first question yet. Yeah, why yeah sorry. Why Italy? Okay, why, why Italy? Okay. And the other question. <laughs> I'll keep it brief. Excuse <laughs> perché lei ha viaggiato molto e ci stiamo chiedendo appunto in, in questo caso perché ha scelto l'Italia tra i paesi che sono stati and it's just a follow up the other one yeah. and just the other one is you said um, there isn't that much difference and you're known for in some cases even making a deal on a handshake on trust coming to Europe uh, it is a, in some cases a very different country different legislation as you said different languages are you worried about the cultural uh, barriers about some of the legislative I don't know, fiscal barriers, things like that. It, does that make it harder to decide if a company's worth buying? Yeah, the why Italy, uh, it's, a, it's a large country with many large family-owned businesses. It, uh, uh, it's the same as the reason for Germany or Spain. Uh, the, the, there are a number of fish in the pond that we'd like to catch, and if there are a lot of fish in the pond, you're going to have a better chance of catching one than if you go to a country where there's only a couple of them. So we like very much the idea that there, there are probably dozens of companies in Italy that might possibly, under some circumstances, decide that they uh, uh, would like to join with, with, with Berkshire over the next 10 or 20 or 30 years. And uh, if I were to go to some much, much smaller country, you know, there might only be a, two or three. So it just makes sense. Uh, uh, it's a country I'm comfortable with, just as I'm comfortable with the other countries we've visited, and many that I haven't visited. Uh, to the second part of your question, uh, we've owned stock in lots of companies that, that are based around the world. Uh, right now, we probably have at least six or seven stocks that, uh, uh, and major investments in, in the billions of dollars in some cases in marketable securities in various companies around the globe. And any time I leave the United States, I know a little bit less about the culture, a little less about the tax laws, perhaps a little less about the regulation. But it's not sufficiently different that I'm unable to make a decision. That, uh, uh, there, there are some countries where I would not feel comfortable. I just I don't know the rules that well, and I wouldn't I wouldn't know whether there were any rules in some countries. Uh, but I don't. I, the companies, the countries I've visited, and many others. Probably there's at least 30 or 40 countries that are large enough to have uh, businesses of a size that would interest us. And where, although my knowledge isn't perfect, uh, the culture certainly is bad in terms of the language, and is and is not perfect in terms of the tax laws, uh, I still know enough to be able to make a decision uh, that I found a good business with good management and price that makes sense. And I didn't know all the rules in terms of taxes in Israel when I first heard from Aton, and but I, I learned enough to get up to speed. Now, I still don't know that. I don't know as much about Israel's rules as I do about the U.S., but I, I, I know plenty enough to be comfortable. Uh, good evening, Mr. Buffett. My name is Gordon Sorlini. I'm with Dow Jones in Milan. 
I was wondering how you feel about governments seeking a more managed version of global trade, sort of this tendency to want to sort of govern globalization, and if you see scope for sort of like a new Bretton Woods type arrangement. Thanks very much. Second part was something of sort of see how you feel about, you know, the idea that maybe we could have a new sort of Bretton Woods type arrangement developing. Oh, maybe we could have a sort of Bretton Woods a kind of system. Yeah, the... I don't know whether it should be exactly a Bretton Woods uh, type reaction, but uh, obviously the whole world is not only benefiting from but struggling with globalization, and uh, there's no question that net trade, the more trade, the better people are going to live in the world. But that doesn't mean every single individual is going to live better because of more trade, and it means that it will become a bigger and bigger political issue as the increase in trade destabilizes certain industries and perhaps even certain countries. So uh, as you can, if you've been following the American election situation, it's, it's a significant issue already in the campaign. It's been a significant issue, probably become a greater one, because, because uh, globalization means disruption. It changes the patterns of of the past and economic activity. It will benefit society. It benefits both sides. Trade benefits both sides, but it doesn't benefit every member of both sides. And those who are disadvantaged can be expected to be vocal and, and uh, politically active in trying to protect their own situation. Over time, though, uh, you know, we've always had that problem, and over time, uh, we have to figure out ways to trade more and more with each other uh, and to protect the people in a rich society like the United States that uh, uh, really have their livelihood destroyed by trade and that are either are perhaps too old uh, to learn something new and uh, we need safety nets in that case uh, and I think uh, uh, whether it's a Bretton Woods or something I think there will be a lot of talk among leaders of the world in the next five or ten years about how they handle uh, both uh, maximizing the benefits of globalization and and dealing with the d disruptions that it produces in individual countries and for individual jobs. Good afternoon, Francesco Manacorda from La Stampa. Uh, there is a hot debate going on in the United States as well as in Europe about the level of uh, top executive compensation. I would like to know which is your opinion about the current level of top executive compensation and uh, which are the rules that you apply in your companies about it. Thank you very much. It makes uh, an enormous difference who's running a company, particularly a large company. So uh, when you get outstanding performance, I have no problem with paying a lot of money to people. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think the system has been particularly good, at least in the United States, in differentiating pay uh, between the people that really are outstanding in terms of their performance as executives and the ones that are quite mediocre. That, uh, um, at Berkshire Hathaway, I am the compensation committee, in effect, for 70-some businesses, and it's not rocket science. Uh, I don't spend lots of time on it. We've never lost a manager, to my knowledge, uh, in 40-some years over compensation issues. 
Uh, we don't bring in compensation consultants. Uh, we don't have a, a policy that tries to apply the same a certain checklist over 76 businesses with very different operating characteristics. Uh, but I, I can tell you that a, mar a market system does not work in terms of, is not working in terms of CEO compensation in the United States. It is not, it's not like baseball players or, or singers or actors or whatever it may be. Uh, uh, oftentimes you'll see an executive leave a position uh, where he or she was earning X dollars per, per year and, and they can't find a job at half X or a quarter of X. So it's clearly not a market system. And uh, it's not really a fair fight when a compensation committee that meets a couple of hours a year, uh, often owning no significant stock that they bought with their own money in the company, is setting the pay and, and the uh, human relations director who is, who is, uh, an employee of the CEO and who uh, comes in recommending a comp consultant to the committee uh, is faced on the other side by a CEO who cares enormously about getting uh, all, all the goodies that his that his counterparts seem to get elsewhere. So we have we are far from a perfect system on executive compensation, but I think it I think at Berkshire Hathaway it makes the the, the compensation systems all make sense because. Uh, they really, we really have an owner on one side, and we have a manager on the other side, and they, we understand each other, and we, we generally understand the nature of the business so we can set standards that are appropriate for the kind of business involved. Some businesses involve lots of capital. You have to think about capital employed. Others don't require capital. Others are very good businesses that, that a chimpanzee could run and make good money, and others are, you know, a genius can't make very good money at. So you... You have to have some knowledge of what you're doing in terms of businesses to set comp, and it's a very inexact science at present in the United States. Monica Dascenso, Sole 24 Ore. Don't you think that here in Europe, and especially in Italy, uh, we miss uh, the philanthropic culture that you have in the U.S.? What kind of culture? Philanthropy. philanthropy. I don't know that much about the philanthropic culture of other countries, except in the United States, a Consistently, about 2% of the uh, income of Americans has gone to uh, philanthropy, which means that with $14 trillion of GDP now, we have about, it's roughly 2% of that, close to, we'll call it 280 or something like that, million, billion of, of philanthropy. And uh, I think there may be a trend toward larger amounts going among what I would call the super rich. Actually, the, the middle class has been better about philanthropy, in a sense, than the, uh, than the very rich in the United States. Uh, uh, I've seen some figures around the world, on, uh, but I don't know how reliable they are. I, that, uh, uh, the major philanthropy is churches, and uh, in terms of how those figures are picked up in other countries, I don't know, but in the United States, that's the single uh, biggest area. I, uh, I'm just not in a, in a position to compare it uh, around the world.